Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Welcome again. It's so nice to see you here in the shop. <laughs> Your second home, almost. Yeah, it feels like it. It's really nice. So. Um, maybe everybody can just move up because I feel sort of lonely. <laughs> start with a period of meditation. I just want to come and hug everybody. <laughs> um, so come into a comfortable position. And let your eyelids close softly. Let your body settle. So that means feeling the stability of the floor. Feeling the way your body naturally breathes. Receiving the sounds of the space. Mm -hmm. 
the temperature. And sharing in the social space of being here in community.
Good evening. Um, I travel a lot, and I teach in many cities, uh, but I'm never as uh, excited uh, to give a talk on a Friday night as I am when I come to Copenhagen. <laughs> because when I come into this room, I recognize so many people that I've known for... Supposedly, I've come here for nine years. So, that's a long time. I guess it's supposed to feel like when I come back and see your face that you look older. <laughs> Obviously, your practice is working. Uh, each year I come here, I choose a theme. Uh, for many years, we studied the Yoga Sutra... I think we did the Bhagavad Gita once. Uh, last year we did a 13th century Japanese manual on sitting meditation. The year before we did, I think, a sampling of some of the Buddha's teachings. And uh, this year I picked a theme instead of a text. And the theme is going to be uh, renunciation and relationships. I thought they would sit really well together, side by side. Um, and we're going to spend some time over the next six days studying an essay that was written uh, within the last decade uh, about the stages of uh, maturation living in a monastery. So uh, we're going to pretend for the next six days we live in a monastery. From my perspective, we all live in a monastery. We just have to stretch what we imagine a monastery is. Uh, and we're going to use that text to look at this integration of renunciation and relationship. Does that sound reasonable? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, can you explain what is renunciation? Well, what was, what's the word for renunciation in Danish? Culpit. Don't look at me. But <laughs> you, okay, letting go. Everything. Okay. Letting go of everything. So that's relaxation. Yes. Yeah. If anybody, if if I say anything tonight that's a technical word or something you don't understand, just raise your hand, and uh, Bodil will uh, translate. Um, and uh, I'll talk for less than an hour, and then we'll have a break, um, have a cigarette. <laughs> we're, we're living uh, just uh, about three blocks from here, and uh, our neighbor is a man in his, uh, I don't know, in his 60s, uh, dresses like a woman. <laughs> Except the best part is he smokes a cigar. <laughs> so he has beautiful women's clothes, but he's always smoking a cigar. And it really, today he didn't shave and it was even better. <laughs> so, um, next year that will be the theme. <laughs> I'm not sure which text we'll choose. Um, I'd like to start with a quote by uh, one of my favorite composers named John Cage. Um, this is from 1951. He says, To improve society, 
Spend more time with people you haven't met. To improve society, spend more time with people you haven't met. On the surface, that seems reasonable. Um, from a spiritual perspective, uh, spending more time uh, with people you haven't met uh, means recognizing that uh, most of the people you haven't met um, are yourself. The person you haven't met is you. And so uh, the practice of Dharma, this practice we're engaged in, uh, is a practice of renunciation, which is a practice of letting go, to uncover uh, who you are. That's the punchline. Uh, The problem is, uh, most of us uh, add this whole scaffolding onto the practice to make it about trying to reach something else. But really, the heart of this practice is just being able to come home. Uh, When you sit, like we're doing uh, tonight, uh, whether it's formal sitting, or when you're just quiet and you're walking, uh, the whole world comes to you. You can feel it, I think, when you sit and you start to settle, that uh, when your breath settles, it feels like the breath comes to you. And instead of your ears uh, chasing sounds, you can start to feel how sounds come to you. Instead of your mind going off chasing thoughts, you can just see how thoughts are like a scroll and they just move through you. That's a really important part of Uh, yoga practice. In the Yoga Sutra, it's called Pratyahara, which is when your sense organs, like your eyes and your ears and your mind, stop chasing things. Uh, I remember when my first son was born, uh, more than ten years ago, uh, I couldn't do so many asanas, because I was so tired all the time. Does anybody here have this experience? (laughs) I'm going through it again right now, except I'm practicing more. Um, And uh, so I decided, well, maybe I should just work on one part of the series instead of thinking, oh, I have to get through the third series every day. But what if I just work on one part? And so the part that I decided to work with was drishti. Because when you're tired, it's really, that's really a, a hard practice, just to keep your eyes open all the time. And then I remember working with drishti, working with gazing, trying to experience the relationship between when my eyes were chasing things and when my eyes were receptive. Uh, anybody here who uh, writes or takes photographs or makes film, or paints, um, you really need to learn how to use your eyes in different ways. Because the normal way we use our eyes, like how we read emails, um, our eyes are trying to get through information to get at something, usually that we want already. It's a kind of appropriation. That's mine. Which creates a theoretical me over here. 
But actually, when you uh, allow your eyes just to receive the whole field of what's available, and the eyes are not chasing after one thing or another, the whole body becomes receptive. One of my favorite uh, photographers is a French photographer named Henri Cartier-Bresson. I don't know if you know his his work, but uh, as he aged, he started taking larger and larger format pictures, where instead of focusing on one thing, he just allowed the viewer to just look at the photograph and find whatever they wanted. And I just learned uh, a couple years ago that he uh, became interested in the last years of his life in Tibetan Buddhism and started meditating. And his meditation practice totally changed how he took photographs. Instead of photographing a thing, he instead was working in a way to allow the viewer to take what they wanted from the image. Not chasing things. So in yoga, this is called pratyahara. Which, which usually gets translated as withdrawal of the senses, which to me always made no sense. <laughs> how, how can you withdraw your senses? You should try it. Like, if you take your nose and you try to withdraw it, like, or your eyes. So, it means when, when the sense organs uncouple from sense objects. Another really interesting place to feel this is in your breathing. Uh, so much of the time, uh, yoga practitioners uh, over-breathe. They breathe in a way that upregulates their nervous system, makes the scalenes get uptight. And then when it's time to lie down in Shavasana, they just go to sleep. <laughs> but one of the uh, important parts of uh, learning how to breathe in yoga practice is learning how to allow the inhale and exhale to come without any manipulation. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. where, where you lie down and you just let the wind of the breath come and go. And that's a really hard practice, to just leave your breath alone. The idea being, unless you can leave your breath alone, how will you be able to leave anything alone? Wait till strong emotions come, or other people. <laughs> Sometimes there's a lot of uh, old grief in the body that hasn't been processed, or old trauma. And you lie down and you realize, oh, I can't, I can't let my breath just come and go. I'm holding it in all these different ways. So the fear response, the fighting response, they all show up in the respiratory system. So in yoga practice, renunciation is both uh, physiological and psychological. So simultaneously, we're working with how we cling in our mind. But then we also notice that whenever there's clinging in the mind, it's also happening at an anatomical level. You can feel, you can feel it right now, you know, if you're feeling uptight. Oh, this talk is not what I expected. <laughs> I thought he was a woman. 
<laughs> How to be with our experience, uh, just as it is. One of the biggest obstacles to this, I think, in our culture, is um, happiness. Uh, does anybody here read magazines on airplanes? <laughs> or watch television? Uh, everything we're sold is that we should have a life where we're so happy all the time. Uh, as much as I love the Dalai Lama, uh, it's starting to upset me how all his books are about getting happy. Uh, there's nothing wrong with happiness, uh, but life is not always happy. I think the byproduct of practice is happiness, but the goal of practice is not happiness. Uh, the goal of the practice is freedom. And it doesn't depend on feeling a certain way. You could feel happy, uh, you could be in pain, and you can still be free. Otherwise, your freedom is entirely dependent on happiness. We know this uh, with parents and children. Like when there is a parent, let's say a mother, and she always wants to be happy. Then when her children are upset or angry, uh, they start to learn uh, that they have to hold that in because the culture of the family is to be happy. And if the culture of the culture is to be happy all the time, we start, learn, we start losing the, the skills of being present with things just as they are. Uh, we need to be able to tolerate uh, and transform all different states of mind so that there's a more stable base that we can work from so that we can go to work in the culture and really make a difference. So the goal of uh, the practice that we're doing together over the next six days uh, is freedom, renunciation, and becoming a more loving person. This should be the goal of, our, of this country. <laughs> freedom, which is bound up in the freedom of others also. Renunciation. And uh, more loving. When I say love, I don't mean love just between two people, but a love of technology, our inventions, architecture, sidewalks, <coughs> urban planning, bike lanes, a love that doesn't leave anything out. Because when we look really deeply at the physical world, all we find are relationships. 
And those relationships are what nourish us. And so we need to take care of those relationships. Because that's what you are. Did you think you were something else? In meditation practice, uh, and in yoga practice, when you start learning how to breathe, uh, it feels like the breath is inside your body. Uh, When you start to feel your muscles, it feels like they're just your body. But then when you start to investigate how you breathe, and you start to investigate holding patterns in your body, you realize, oh, these also belong to my ancestors. Uh, You know, this is the shoulder my mother has, or... You know, this is the hearing my father has. And then you realize it's not just a singular you, but you exist forwards and backwards in time and space. And then you might recognize that as you inhale and exhale and get concentrated, uh, well, let me stop. So that might be like four or five years. (laughs) For four or five years, you're just trying to take your attention and turn it inward. Because our attention is so caught up sticking to things, clinging to whatever, whatever you can cling to. So the beginning stage of practice is really being able to turn inwards, I think. And follow your breath. Uh, some students uh, who are anxious, when they start meditating, I say, if you want to follow your breath, just trust your breath. I say this to kids a lot. I say, your breath is your best friend. It's always loyal. Sometimes when I teach meditation to kids, I'll get them to lie down and put like a little stuffed animal on their belly and just feel it going, with washing going up and down. And then I'll say, that's your best friend. And I don't mean the animal. But, but the thing that's making it go up and down. And then sometimes I'll say to them, we, we should do this with adults, actually. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, and then, uh, can you trust that the breath is going to go up and down? Usually you say this to adults and they start crying. Because we see how much we're running away from just the simple feeling. Then uh, once you can do that, uh, to adults I'll say, okay, now now count your breath. So inhale, and count it on the exhale. So after you finish one exhale, just say one. And then you do this until you can get to ten. It's really hard. (laughs) Inhale, exhale one, inhale, exhale two, until you get to ten. And then when you get to ten, start over and do it again. Uh, never give that to someone with obsessive compulsive disorder. <laughs> I can't stop counting. I'm counting everything in my fridge. And I can already tell you how many floor planks there are in the room. <laughs> um, another practice I give people just to start is when you inhale, say to yourself, Peace in. And when you exhale, say to yourself, peace out. 
And that's a really good uh, practice for people who are anxious, just like everybody in this room. <laughs> just to say to yourself, peace in... And you might think, oh, I'm so advanced, I'm already doing, you know, Kapalabhati. <laughs> but actually to feel how the breath, without manipulating it, uh, settles your nervous system and your wandering or compulsive attention. Uh, then, uh, once this happens, the next stage is to uh, feel your breath, so be receptive to your breath, and then also allow your ears to open, so that when you're sitting, you're also aware of the sounds of the space. And here we are in Copenhagen, and there's always sounds. In Toronto, the sounds are usually sirens. <coughs> but here, you have beautiful bells, there's so many churches in this neighborhood. You have the sound of the doors, cars, motorcycles. And just to be aware of the sounds. But aware of the sounds in a way where your whole body is receiving the sound. And when you meditate, uh, what happens over time is if you're breathing and receptive to the breath, and then you're receptive to sounds, <coughs> they get mixed up with each <laughs> They get mixed up with each other. So it almost feels like it's the breathing that's listening to the sounds. The breath is absorbing the sounds. And you forget about yourself. And the point of that transition from the breath to sound is so that your attention's not focused inward anymore. So we want the awareness to be non, non-local. So the awareness is not uh, internal, and the awareness is also not out there. It's just awareness. It's only uh, a linguistic um, creation that there is this internal and external. Even if your eyes are closed when you're meditating, when you feel the breath and listen to sounds, you can't tell if they're inside or outside. When you heard that bell, was the bell out there? Or was the bell in here? And when you're sitting and, and, and the attention gets quiet, it doesn't matter anymore. No inside, no outside. So all that you're doing is you're paying attention to the feeling of your life. As it's happening from moment to moment to moment. And this is renunciation. The external part of renunciation is quite easy. I'm going to give up, you know, my second bicycle. It's easy to give up things. I think we all do this every spring. Like, oh, I, why do I have so much stuff? And really, you don't have so much stuff, but it feels like you have so much stuff. But, but the real heart of renunciation is working with all of the baggage that you carry around. That acts like a filter between what's actually going on in our moment-to-moment experience and how you want it to happen. How you want things to go. I made some notes, which I'm not following at all. (laughs) 
Oh, there we go. So I made a list. Um, I love lists. It's the only thing I like about the Yoga Sutra. There's lots of lists. Um, I, I, I'm trying to make a list to, uh, just to help myself in thinking of ways that we can practically take this theme of renunciation and bring it into our lives as a vow to not hold on so much. Tonight I'm wearing this kesa. Um, some of you are familiar with it. Uh, part of my Zen training is um, with my teacher is once you've studied six or seven years, then um, you sew this robe. Uh, in China, the, uh, there was a time where monks were persecuted. Um, so they took their robes and they sewed them up in the shape of rice patties, like this, and then they could put them underneath their, their clothing, so nobody would know. Um, so monks, instead of wearing full robes, they would just wear these. Um, and um, so uh, with my teacher, once you've been studying for a while, I've had this for a while now, but um, uh, you sew one and you make vows. Um, and uh, that process for me, well, it's not like this for everybody, but for me it was, uh, had a huge impact. Uh, so whenever I practice with her, I always um, wear robes, wear these. This is called a roxu. Um, and uh, so then, uh, and when I teach in Toronto, I always wear this. Uh, but uh, then uh, I, I had a, a second son born this year, who was supposed to be here tonight, but he has a bit of a cold, so he's sleeping. Um, and when my son was born, uh, I realized, oh, I wasn't going to be able to do the practice I always do, which is every summer I spend a lot of time studying in a monastic setting. So uh, I, as soon as he was born, I put this on. And then around the house, I wore it every time I had to do laundry or wash the dishes so that I created a domestic monastery. And so now, whenever there's like a lot of housework to do, does anybody have a house like this where you have like vacuum? And <laughs> uh, most people are much more advanced than us. They get other people to do this for them. <laughs> um, so as a family, we'll get ready to do our, our housework, and I'll put this on. No, this this is going to be the heart of my practice. And my goal was to just flip everything around. So that everything in our house that is the most mundane and everyday and kind of uh, regular activity, that was going to become the most sacred thing. And we were going to do it as a family. So what does this have to do with renunciation? Because it has to do with values. Uh, the value of work, the value of taking care of things, the value of treating everything as sacred. So I decided uh, for tonight, I did this this afternoon, to, to make a little list of how we can take a renunciation practice into our life. And we're going to go through this in much more detail over the next six days. And I'm sorry if you're expecting me to quote Sanskrit tonight. <laughs> Be fancy.
Uh, number one, having a spiritual practice that works with your private sorrow. So number one is having a spiritual practice that works with the part of your heart that is sad. I know I'm supposed to say happy. <laughs> uh, the part of your heart, personally, that's still holding on to old, um, crusty grief. The part of your heart that's still fighting against enemies. Or the part of our heart, all of us, that's sad for the state of our uh, environment or economy. And I think it's important to give attention to that part of the heart because sometimes I think we are just kind of dancing on top of it. So the first stage of renunciation, I think, is really giving attention to the places in our heart where there's a kind of sadness that has a lot of weight to it um, that is just going to grow if we don't give it attention. And attention every day, like personal hygiene. Just like the way you floss every day, I hope. <laughs> I don't want to know the details. <laughs> but also every day, I think when we sit, just to give it attention, oh, how, how am I feeling right now? And not to create a whole big story about it, but just, oh, how do I feel? So that's number one a spiritual practice that's designed to give attention to the places in us where there's sorrow. Uh, number two. A meditation practice that occurs in activity. So this could start really small. Like having an activity during the day that you turn into a meditative practice. So I already described for you something that I do. I have a student who's a school teacher, and her practice is she comes into school 30 minutes before school starts, and she sweeps the floor. Even though at night the janitor has already cleaned the floor. But she comes in and she sweeps the floor, inhaling, And she's not really sweeping the floor. She's sweeping her mind. And then the kids come into school one by one, and uh, she looks them in the eye. And she says, oh, good morning, Peter. Good morning, Bodo. And before, she used to come in just before 9 o'clock, photocopying, spilling her coffee. The kids would come in, they're a pain in the ass, you know. <laughs> She told me once that uh, she used to be a month into class with 20 students and she didn't even know their names yet. I have another student who's a surgeon. She has a hallway from her office to the surgery room. And so she does walking meditation down the hallway really slowly. Just walking really slow and mindfully from her office to the surgery room. 
And then when the surgery is done, she walks back from her office, uh, from the surgery room back to her office. She's an abortion doctor. And every time she walks into that room, she's right there with the woman that she's working with. And she said in the kind of work that she does, she doesn't really make many mistakes. But just little things go wrong sometimes. And she said that's totally decreased. And then the way back to her office is just for her. Not holding on to that experience, coming back, settling in her office. I have a yoga student who's really, really busy. So uh, her practice is she um, takes a lot of time locking and unlocking her bicycle lock. She parks somewhere. She leans her bike against what she's going to lock it to. And then she'll take her time. It's not like in Copenhagen where you just lock the back tire. In Toronto, your bike would just get picked up and taken. <laughs> um, and whatever you lock, just really taking your time, breathing, turning the lock. So there's something in your life where you're translating the stillness of meditative practice with some activity. So there's, just pick one thing and you formalize it. So that, that's the second, second idea for a kind of practical renunciation. Uh, no, nothing on this list is going to be about getting rid of your stuff, just in case you're waiting for that. <laughs> or, you know, donating all your money to Yogi Mudra. <laughs> Number three is... Um, Discovering values that see the natural world as sacred. So living in a way where your actions are totally in line with your values. So that we can treat the natural world as sacred. And you might think, oh, I already do this. (laughs) I think all trees are sacred, even though I lock my bike up to one every day. So we live in a growth-based economy. And the shadow of a growth-based economy is our environment. Economists call this extractivism, which is where you take as much as you can out of the natural world as fast as you can. (coughs) before anybody catches you, especially the natural world. (coughs) Was that the third one? The fourth one. Encouraging an interior life that flows outward. Okay? So, for all you extroverts... That means really giving value to your internal life. But an internal life that flows outwards. 
So one of my favorite teachers is a 13th century Zen teacher named Dogen. And the way he says it is like this. To study the way is to study the self. In yoga we call this swadhyaya, to study the self. And everyone always just stops there. Oh, I have to really study myself. But then he keeps going. To study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. Did you hear that part? (laughs) Psychoanalysis is very expensive. You don't need to study the self, study the self, study the self, study the self. The studying the self for what purpose is to forget about yourself. And then he says, to forget about yourself is to be touched by 10,000 things. Isn't that beautiful? To forget about yourself is actually to receive 10,000 things. 10,000, so in Japan they call 10,000, in yoga we say (laughs) 72,000. Basically this means lots. To be touched by 72,000 things. I remember one time Patabi Joyce was trying to teach something about anatomy and he asked his daughter, how many bones are in the body? And she said, (laughs) 72,000. Then Dogen says, uh, to study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to be touched by 10,000 things. If you go into the world and confirm it, that's delusion. But enlightenment is to go into the world and be confirmed by it. Okay, so to go into the world... Some, some, you probably do this anymore. Like some of you who go out in nature, have you heard about this thing called nature? It's like trees and birds. Um, sometimes you go into nature and like you can't really become the experience of nature because we're looking around. Oh, that's a nice bird there. Or, oh, my dog took off over there. So he's saying that's delusion. Oh, I know the name of that, I know the name of that, I know the name of that. But to go into the natural world free, he calls this enlightenment. But what's the natural world? This is the natural world. How can we move through the world in a way where we're not superimposing our perspective? every single thing that we experience. Because that's not an experience at all. Uh, Number five. The empire is hollow. (laughs) 
you're not going to find satisfaction chasing after things that our culture says are going to make you happy. Because that's all a happiness based on a fantasy of being satisfied sometime in the future. So spiritual practice is the recognition that all we have is relational life. It's all we've got. Pick anything in the material world and you'll discover it's nothing but a series of relationships. And you're not separate from that. So how do we cultivate a spirit, an attitude, in our own lives where we don't make ourselves separate from things? And in doing so, we'll stop seeing them as things. is a sophisticated way of talking about love. That all of us can love uh, much more deeply. And in order to go through that process, uh, we have to have a strong enough container. And that container is our practice. So it's like you're a column... Well, I only say this because I know a lot of you in the room, but you can imagine yourself like a column, and you're as big and tall as you're going to get. Some of you, you know so many practices, you probably know more practices than most humans have ever known in history. And you might think, oh, I have to learn another pranayama technique. (coughs) But actually, you probably know more techniques than anybody in your ancestry. So the column's as good as it needs to be. And now your job is just to let the column ripen. Which means to practice as if it's a craft. For another 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 hours. Days. Years. So that everything you know already now just gets to mature. I think that someone becomes a real yogi, a real student, when they are not a seeker anymore. They're done looking for the next practice, the next thing, the next teacher, the next system. And then they take what they know and they really start to ripen it. Which is another way of saying they really start to trust themselves. Because now there's a stability underneath them. And then when the going gets tough, 
you have something to trust that's more solid than your neurosis. I mean, even though sometimes it seems really solid. Some of my neuroses are very solid. But we have something to go to that's deeper than that. Otherwise, we end up running around, which is a big obstacle. Which is just trying to get other people to love you. And trying to get other people to love you is the biggest obstacle. Because it blocks other people being allowed to really see you. Because you don't know who you are. Because you're running around. In every tradition of meditation that I'm familiar with, there's usually two um, wings. Um, in the Buddhist tradition that I practice, one wing is called shamatha. Uh, sham is where you get the word shanti, and it just means uh, to calm or to stop. Sometimes it's translated as peace. So that's uh, having a meditative practice that teaches you how to stop. And hopefully, if you come to Yoga Mudra, uh, you have this practice, learning how to stop. <coughs> to stop running. And the other side of practice uh, is called vipassana. Uh, v means to go in, and pasha is an I, or in Pali, vipassana, which means uh, to see, to, to really go in and see something. And so meditation practice usually has these two sides. All traditions seem to work within this system. Usually the first side is just learning how to stop, and I describe some examples of that. Uh, feeling your breath, counting to ten, peace in, peace out. These are all ways of just teaching you how to stop. A lot of people are scared of stopping. And then once you've stopped, you go in and you look around. Is this about me? Is what I'm experiencing permanent? So you just, you go in and you investigate what's there. And as your practice matures, these two uh, different uh, techniques start coming together. So, so the ability to calm and concentrate and look deeply at something, they start getting closer and closer and closer. Till they become one thing. And what they become is spontaneity. What they become is creativity. A real responsiveness.
there's a monk named Yunmen, and someone asked Yunmen, uh, what is your practice? And Yunmen said, an appropriate response. <laughs> Some of you, if somebody said, what's your practice? You might say, oh, well, I'm working on second series, <laughs> Ustrasana, it's really hard. Mostly because I'm, you know, overweight, not eating raw food these days. <laughs> I really like the bakery. But Yunmen cut right through. What's your practice? It's an appropriate response. It's immediate. So what's your practice? How do you respond? There's a story of two monks in a kitchen, and uh, they're weighing the food to prepare for the dinner. And one monk says to the other monk, what's enlightenment? And, and the monk was uh, taking uh, a big bag of flax and putting it on a scale. And he looked up at him and he said, three pounds of flax. <laughs> <laughs> So when you can stop, and when you can see clearly, you can respond appropriately. And if there's anything that our culture needs right now, it's human beings that can respond appropriately. Our culture needs that much more than your spiritual powers, or your enlightenment. Maybe being able to respond creatively is deeper than enlightenment. So, over the next six days, uh, the pinnacle of our practice is going to be valuing relationship. And the process of uh, working with that as a goal of practice is going to be renunciation. And that's what we're going to work with for six days. Okay? And then at the end... <laughs> Thank you very much. So, uh, maybe we can just have a little break. Cigars, cross dressing, and, uh, and then we can have a discussion.